This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Laura Vandenberg, author of two short story collections. Her first, called What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us, was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection and longlisted for the Story Prize. Her new collection is called The Isle of Youth. Vandenberg has an MFA in creative writing from Emerson College. She began her undergraduate education as a psychology major and switched to creative writing. I asked her if she thinks there is a relationship between psychology and fiction. Well, I think certainly, um, you know, when you're writing fiction, you give a great deal of thought to uh, character psychology. And um, not in the sense that you're trying to diagnose your characters, but why do they have these patterns? Why do they do what they're doing? Why are they um, why are they finding themselves in the state in which they're finding themselves? And I think for me, sometimes I think of it as more of a philosophical problem than a psychological problem in the medical sense. Um, but certainly, we give a lot of thought to character psychology, and, and that's something, you know, I write a lot in the first person. Um, and I think one recurring tension with first person is always, like, what the narrator is dying to tell the reader and what they would die to not tell the reader. Um, what they would do, they like the thing that they're desperate to tell and the thing that they would avoid at all costs. Um, and so certainly for me, that, you know, involves thinking a great deal about their, their psychology. In your new collection, The Isle of Youth, six of the seven short stories are in first person. And I'm wondering if you ever try to resist that or you just go with it. Yeah, I do. I do actually at a certain point in the revision stage, um, I, I tend to start stories with voice. And when I say voice, I mean, often start a story because a, a sentence just gets sort of lodged in my brain and I can't shake it out. So, for example, um, with uh, Acrobat, that first sentence became just stuck in my head and I could not could not shake it out. Um, the day my husband left me, I followed a trio of acrobats around the city of Paris. And I just, I had no idea where that had come from. I had no idea what it was connected to, but I just, I could not stop thinking about it. And so often that voice is an I voice um, and it's always a woman's voice. So I do write those initial drafts following that, that intuition um, and following that sort of impulsive voice. But I do also think it's really important if you know that there's something that you do a lot, like you write a lot in the first person or a lot in the present tense or a lot in maybe a particular kind of setting, um, often at a certain point in the revision stage, I actually make myself rewrite the story in the third person or in a different point of view just to make sure that the strategy that I've chosen is really the right strategy for the story and not what's just familiar or comfortable for me as a, as a writer. So in this story collection, I took notes and I noticed some things came up a lot. The idea of sisters and twins and men leaving, whether it was fathers or husbands or a lot of women abandoning their marriages, um, women who are lost, who know they're lost, but they the idea that they're lost becomes kind of in the background of, of the immediacy of whatever mm -hmm. it is they're doing, which is kind of random. And, and putting people in foreign places. So those are some of the things that I noticed came up again and again in your stories. 
And I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Certainly, you know, when I wrote the first couple of stories in the collection, I wasn't really thinking consciously of thematic links that would hold together a book. Um, But then, of course, certainly after I'd written, you know, four stories or five stories, I sort of stood back and said, hey, there's, um, you know, there's these stories have quite a bit in common. Um, There's that sense of, you know, disconnection from the self and disconnection from the people that are the most intimate, should be the most sort of intimately important to you, like parents and spouses and siblings. Um, I was, I became conscious at a certain point of playing with noir themes. So, you know, there are a lot of an inordinate amount of private eyes and, uh, and mysteries and doubling, um, things that, you know, trying to evoke that sense of the, of the uncanny. Um, so certainly as I worked on the book as a whole, I was definitely conscious that those themes existed in the stories and then sort of drawing them out as I worked on shaping the collection as a whole. Um, and I actually, my first collection of stories that was published in 2009, What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us, uh, is also a story that you might call sort of thematically linked. Um, Most of the stories involve uh, a mythic element of some kind. So there's one story that involves Bigfoot. There's another story that involves Black Nest Monster. um, And so sometimes that mythic element is more, more literal and other times it's sort of more more in the background. And I went through a very similar process where I wrote some of the stories and sort of noticed that, um, you know, these same thematic elements kept coming up over and over again, um, and then began to shape a collection. But I think if if you're working with thematic links, one thing that's really important is to not begin to force stories that sort of fit in a particular box. Um, because I think that that, that in my experience, is when you end up not doing your best writing. So on the one hand, you know, I'm conscious that these themes are emerging. And then on the other hand, you know, I'm sort of waiting for the next story to come and just waiting for it to bubble up um, with its own urgency and its own need, as opposed to trying to force myself to write material uh, in this in this vein, if that makes sense. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Laura Vandenberg, author of the short story collection called The Isle of Youth. I would say in every single story here, there's a woman who wants out of her life. Mm, yeah. And what what is that about for you? Or what do you think interests you about that idea? Well, I was definitely... So when I became... Um, aware that I was working with a lot of noir tropes. Um, I was sort of thinking, you know, what is that, what is that about in, in a character sense? Um, what is that, what's, what's going on, what's going on there in sort of a, a, the deeper, the deeper sense. Um, and I, I sort of came to see those noir elements as, a way to explore the internal mysteries that these characters are, these women are struggling with. Um, you know, why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, who am I? Uh, how how can I get out of this mess that I found myself in? So I was, I was interested in using the pressure of the external mysteries of the stories to crack open 
the internal mysteries that these women are facing um, that often, you know, do have to do with wanting to get out of, of whatever, of wherever it is that they, that they are. Let's talk about the title story, The Isle of Youth. It's about twin sisters who were not close when they were growing up. It's told in first person, and the narrator is one of the sisters, and she is not named. Her identical twin sister, Sylvia, lives in Florida and is having an affair with a married man and being followed by this man's wife. Sylvia calls the narrator to come visit and impersonate her while she goes away with her lover, so the wife would still think she was following her around. It turns out that the situation isn't as Sylvia portrayed, and I found it interesting, the idea of switching places and to be so betrayed by your sister. So what were you thinking about when you wrote this? I This story is sort of, it's kind of a mystery to me. It was one of, um, it's one of the first stories. So the first story I wrote that's in this collection is Acrobat. And then this was the second story. And, you know, Acrobat is, very uh, compressed in terms of time. And then it follows one woman over the course of uh, a day and a night. Um, And so I was really longing to write a bigger story, um, something that was more expansive that has, you know, lots of different characters and lots of different threads. And in fact, you know, in manuscript, I mean, the story is really almost, um, you know, approaching novella length and, and it's written in, in several parts. So, um, so I wanted to sort of give give myself room to stretch a little bit in narrative terms, and I was I was becoming very interested in this idea of twins, and what could be what could be done with that. Um, and you know, I think uh, for me, the idea of the twin or the double presents an alternate version of the narrator, a potential path they can either accept or reject. Um, and in that sense, the presence of the devil is a source of both attraction and resistance. And so I was really interested in that tension, the way, you know, the unnamed narrator is both sort of attracted to Sylvia. She has this kind of magnetic quality, yet there are aspects of her life that she's very quick to reject. Um, so there's that, that duality happening. Um, and I also wanted to create a world that had a kind of spooky texture where you haven't left reality, but you're right on the edge of something um, that feels sort of darkly magical. And I had been watching a lot of um, sort of Antonioni movies uh, that are in the vein of what you might call like existential noir, like The Passenger, for example. I'd watched The Passenger um, several times. And so I was really interested in the idea of someone taking on a new identity and, um, and trying to erase who they were in both a literal sense, but also in, in sort of an emotional or psychological sense. And then finally, I think the, the other thing that was in my mind while I was working on the story is that for the, this was the first time I'd ever written a story about Florida. Um, Florida was a potential path that I could have either accepted or rejected um, in that a lot of my family is still in Florida. It would not have been strange in their eyes for me to have stayed in Florida my whole life. Um, so that path was available to me and I chose to reject it. And I had sort of dismissed Florida as, you know, a subject for fiction. Oh, it's not, it's not that interesting. Um, and then I started to realize that in fact, Florida is a fascinating, singular, wild, eccentric state. Um, and so for the first time I was, I was actually drawn to, to writing a story that's set in Florida. 
You mentioned that you were influenced by film. Do you find a lot of influences through other forms of art? I do, yeah. Um, I mean, certainly film, because film is so imagistic. Um, So I I was thinking a lot about um, some of the Hitchcock films, like Vertigo, when thinking about the idea of the doubling and the uncanny. Um, And I draw a lot of inspiration from visual art, too, I think in a less specific way. Um, Not that I could, you know, sort of connect one story to one specific painting, but just in the sense that um, it always sort of does something to me. It opens up something inside me to be in the presence of art. And I love painting. Um, So I love to just sort of be in that milieu. Um, Until recently, I lived in Baltimore and I lived very close, uh, you know, a 10 minute walk from the Baltimore Museum of Art, which is free. Um, So often if I was stuck on a story, I would walk over there and look at, you know, look at the Jasper Johns and um, the Joni Mitchell and just, and just drink, drink that in. Um, And and often that had a way of kind of loosening up whatever aspect of my brain had gotten, had gotten frozen. One thing you've done is teach creative writing in prisons, and I'm wondering if it taught you something about yourself as a human or a writer. Well, you know, here's an interesting thing. Um, I noticed that uh, I noticed a trend with the student work, uh, and I'm thinking of a fiction fiction workshop here. Uh, the students either tended to write work that was very Explicitly autobiographical, or that was as far away from their own autobiography as they could get. So, like science fiction, for example, um, or a story set in you know the 1500s, uh, and and there was like there was a, there was nothing in between. And I thought that that was really interesting. The way students were either using writing as a way to confront something, or using writing as a way to escape. Um, and, I, and I was really struck by that. And I don't know if there's necessarily a concrete lesson that I gleaned from that, but that is something that I do think about a lot um, with my own work, particularly at the drafting stage. Like, what is it that I'm trying to move forward, move toward? And what is it that I might want to escape from? Because I think often that that thing that you might want to escape from is probably the thing that you need to look at to write the story. And it's something that I think about with student work, too. What is this, what is the student trying to move toward and what does it seem like they might be trying to evade or sidestep or, or escape from? Um, so that was sort of a, a personal lesson and a craft lesson that was compelling to me and has certainly stayed with me. And in terms of sort of a more human level, I think it just affirmed for me the universality of literature and the power of literature. Um, and just to see, you know, this group of students who had totally different backgrounds from myself and my co-teachers, and we could all love the same short story. Um, and just the idea that literature could be such a, a, a connecting point uh, which was very powerful to experience in that environment. Well, having said that, I'm wondering if you could read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. So I have a passage from Amy Humpel's story, Amazing Story of the Cemetery Where Al Jolson's Buried. So I would be happy to read that. Okay. And this comes from just the middle of the story. Uh, and the, the 
premise is very simple. Uh, the, the narrator is the first person story and the narrator's visiting a friend uh, who's, who's in the hospital and the friend's dying. She laughs and I cling to the sound the way someone dangling above a ravine holds fast to the thrown rope. Tell me, she says, about that chimp with a talking hand. What do they do when the thing ends and the chimp says, I don't want to go back to the zoo? When I don't say anything, she says, okay, then tell me another animal story. I like animal stories, but not a sick one. I don't want to know about all the seeing eye dogs going blind. No, I would not tell her a sick one. How about the hearing ear dogs, I say? They're not going deaf, but they're getting very judgmental. For instance, there's this golden retriever in New Jersey. He wakes up the deaf mother and drags her into the daughter's room because the kid has got a flashlight and is reading under the covers. Oh, you're killing me, she says. Yes, you're definitely killing me. They say the smart dog obeys but the smarter dog knows when to disobey. Yes, she says, the smarter anything knows when to disobey. Now, for example. She is flirting with a good doctor who has just appeared. Unlike the bad doctor who checks the IV drip before saying good morning, the good doctor says things like, God didn't give epileptics a fair shake. The good doctor awards himself points for the cripples he could have hit in the parking lot. Because the good doctor is a little in love with her, he says maybe a year. He pulls up a chair to her bed and suggests I might like to spend an hour on the beach. Bring me something back, she says, anything from the beach or the gift shop. Taste is no object. He draws the curtain around her bed. Wait, she cries. I look in at her. Anything, she says, except a magazine subscription. The doctor turns away. I watch her mouth laugh. So tell me about why you chose this. I love Amy Hempel. This is the first story I ever read of hers, and I still love the story. I teach it all the time. And the thing that I love about that was really striking to me and that has remained very influential is the way Hempel um, manages the tone in this story. And I love tones that do this kind of high wire act between devastation and hilarity. So... There's a lot about this story that in a, in a sort of a dark, horrifying way is very, very funny, depending perhaps, I suppose, on your sense of humor. But like, I love that line, um, you know, when the friend says anything but a magazine subscription, this really like dark joke, right? Because she's not going to be around to receive those magazines that would come with the subscription. Um, I, so I love, I loved the, the, that high wire act that Hempel does between, you know, humor and devastation and the sense of the humor uh, coming from a place of sort of hysteria and rage. Um, I loved the feeling as a reader that that story gave me. Um, and, and I just, you know, I loved, I loved the voice. This story was one of those magic stories that for me shifted my perception of the world ever so slightly. And that's, I think that's always like such a special thing as a reader. Can you read a passage from something you wrote? It could have been something that was hard to write or something that changed in the draft or just something that you succeeded at. Um, yes. I'm, so I'm going to read a passage from I Looked For You, I Called Your Name, uh, which is the first story in the collection. And it's going to be um, a passage, a, a scene that I was stuck on for a really long time. And just to give a little context, um, the narrator is first-person story. The narrator is on a honeymoon in Patagonia with her husband, and it is not going well. Um, the first thing that went wrong was an emergency landing uh, during which she broke her nose. So 
she's in, in physical pain and emotional pain simultaneously. And she's, they're staying at um, a resort in Patagonia and she's become sort of fixated with this woman named Christina Humboldt who's part of another couple that's also at this resort. And the scene takes place when the narrator has left her hotel room in the middle of the night and she's, she's sitting on the beach. The beach was so dark that if the moon hadn't shifted and cast a fan of light onto the strip of water I happened to be watching, I might've missed her altogether. But when the profile of a swimming woman entered my field of vision, I recognized Christina Humboldt from the way her hair was gathered at the nape, just as it had been at the cocktail reception and the slim shape of her shoulders. I imagined her husband sleeping soundly in their room, unaware that his wife had slipped into a dimension of her own. Or, for all I knew, she went swimming every night and told her husband about it the next morning over breakfast. Other people's lives were no less impossible to understand than my own. She stopped swimming and looked toward the beach. I waved, first casually and then more vigorously, crisscrossing my arms over my head like I was in need of rescue. I watched her come to land. I wanted to ask her things about the life she led, but she just looked in my direction for a long time, her body bobbing in the water before continuing. She had seen me, I was certain, but she wasn't coming out to meet me. I moved my tongue across my teeth, pushing upwards until the pressure translated into a bright line of pain. Soon I lost sight of Christina, but I didn't want to go back to my room. Instead, I raked the sand with my fingers and thought about how, for as long as I could remember, I felt an emptiness where other things were supposed to be. I opened my mouth and started packing it with fistfuls of damp sand. The grain scratched the roof of my mouth and got wedged between my teeth. Grit ran down the back of my throat. My cheeks ballooned, sand stuck to my gums, it became difficult to breathe. I imagined my body filling up like an hourglass. I imagined my husband or the hotel manager or Christina Humboldt finding me on this rock the next morning, weighted down like a carnival dummy. I kept going until I could barely breathe, until I couldn't close my mouth, until I was leaking sand. And then I coughed it all out, my shoulders heaving as wet clumps fell to the ground. Days later, I would still be finding the evidence, a grain stuck in a molar, a scratch on my tongue. One afternoon at lunch, I would blow my nose and notice specks of sand on the tissue. And years later, after Patagonia was far behind us, this was the moment I would remember because I had acted inexplicably in the middle of the night and I never had to explain myself. So tell me a little bit about that, what you were trying to accomplish and why it was hard. I knew that I wanted the, the narrator to go to the beach and to see the silhouette of a woman who might be Christina Humboldt swimming in the middle of the night. Um, but I felt like something else needed to happen in that moment. And so I found myself sort of trapped in this space where I could only do the expected thing. So she was sort of sitting and thinking or... Um, you know, I had one scene that didn't work very well where she got into the water herself and it all had this sort of familiar stilted quality. Like this is the scene, this is a scene that I've read before. Um, so it took me a long time to, to write the moment where she opens her mouth and she starts stuffing sand in her mouth. And the first time I wrote it, I was like, oh, this is crazy. This makes no sense. Why would someone do this? Um, but I'm like, I'm just, I'm just going to go with it. 
And then when I got to the end of the scene, I realized, you know, why she would do such a such a bizarre and inexplicable thing that in some ways the inexplicability, the freedom to do the inexplicable was kind of the point of the action. Um, and then I, I knew that I had the right moment for that point in the story. So was there something that gave you the idea that she would put all the sand in her mouth? Or did that just come out of this? Like, did you just start writing it without even being consciously aware? One exercise that I like to do um, when I'm stuck on something, it's just sort of what I what I call the what if exercise. I just go, what if, and I write, I, I jot down for, say, a minute or two, everything that I can think of. And, and I just let myself just think of the wildest stuff. So what if a spaceship landed? What if she turned into a giraffe? What if she put sand in her mouth? Um, and often sort of, I think, giving myself permission to think in those sort of wild directions often leads me to something that feels um, that feels right. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Laura Vandenberg, author of the short story collection called The Isle of Youth. So where do you write? My ideal situation is to work at a desk in a quiet room. Um, my husband and I recently moved to the Boston area where I'm lucky enough to have um, this lovely office upstairs that has this nice tall window that looks out onto a field. What do you do or where do you go when you don't want to write, when you want to get away from it? I, I mean, I think I do a lot of things that sort of most people do. I mean, I take long walks. I have meals and drinks um, with friends. I love to travel. Um, and, you know, I go dancing. Um, I also, in the last five or six years, got really into uh, various forms of exercise. And I'm sure for my health and my spine and all those things, I should be, you know, doing yoga or something. But I, I love kickboxing. I'm totally amateur and sort of slow and not very good. But I really I love it. And I find that it's a great um, it's a great head clearer for me. Who do you show your work to to get feedback first? I show it to my husband and a handful of close friends that are my first readers. Um, these are fellow writers, people I met at in graduate school, or um, a couple of people I met at, at summer writers conferences. And then after that group, it's usually my agent is the next person. And I have to say, the one caveat is that I used to show fairly early drafts to first readers, but I'm actually trying to do that less now to hold off on showing new work until I have a fairly polished draft. Um, I realized at a certain point that I was showing work early draft because I wanted validation. Um, and I was like, you know, you need to train yourself to like be able to give that validation to yourself. How have you dealt with rejection? I think, you know, rejection is just, it's a constant. And it's true of any kind of, you know, fine arts, I think. But for the writer, it is a constant. So, you know, it is, it is hard, uh, particularly in, in the early stages, um, when you don't quite realize what a constant it's going to be. But I think the best thing any writer can do with rejection is to turn it into fuel. So if I'm feeling down, if I'm feeling beleaguered, usually the only thing that makes me feel better is to generate and to go back to work. And if you're letting the pain of rejection impair your work, then the rejection is winning. Um, and so if you feel like, I think to, to write in the face of rejection, to write in the face of some sort of disappointment, is at its at its core a very hopeful act um and it's saying sort of like i will write something better i will do better i will get i will get to that next place that that i want to be and what is your favorite word 
So one of my favorite words is islands. I love the word islands. I love the idea of islands. I love visiting islands. Um, and of course that, you know, ties into the title of the collection, The Isle of Youth. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Laura Vandenberg, author of the short story collection, Isle of Youth. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.